3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just past 7.01 in the morning. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Carly. Good morning. morning. So um, I know it's a bit of a a difficult week, especially after yesterday's announcements um, around the changes to restrictions. People are keeping an eye on that. We just recommend, and we will plug a couple of times during the show, that people head to the Department of Health and Human Service. I think it's still the DHHS website, but Mm. the Victorian government's coronavirus page uh, where you can see new exposure sites. And these have been growing over the past few days. I think it's up to about 70 something now. Is that right, Carly? Yeah, Um, the exposure sites have. Yeah. Yeah. So please, please make sure um, that if you have been in an exposure site, you follow the the directions to get tested, to isolate if necessary. Um, We want to make sure that we can keep everybody safe. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, We've got a we've got a pretty packed show today. Uh, did we want to jump into a rundown? Yeah, I think so. Um, so first up, we're going to hear some speeches from the um, Support Harm Reduction in the Inner West rally that was held in Nicholson Mall, Footscray, on Saturday, May 22nd. Um, And that same week, last week, we saw opponents of an injecting facility, um, including the ALP, Mayor of Maribyrnong, Michael Clark, and right-wing politicians mobilise on Wednesday night, which was also counter-protested. And, yeah, the rally, um, yeah, just sounded really, really great. So I'm glad that we've got some... Um, speeches to play this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And after that, uh, we're going to hear an interview that Rosie did with Fernanda Rodriguez, who's a member of the Colombian community living in Melbourne. She's an engineer and a member of Solidarity for Colombia, and the group have been raising funds to support First Line, which is a Colombian activist organization. And she joined Rosie to discuss the ongoing protests and strikes that are currently happening in Colombia. We will then be hearing from um, Janine Hurani in conversation with the Women on the Line presenter, Sherazad. Um, Janine Hurani is a Palestinian activist, campaigner and storyteller and is currently the director of Road to Refuge, an organization that aims to change the narrative. Um, sorry. Aims to change the narrative um, around refugees and people seeking asylum by transferring the power of narrative back to those who are most directly impacted. You can hear the, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you'll be able to hear the full episode of Women on the Line on Monday. Um, So we really recommend people tune into Women on the Line um, Monday, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR, which I'm not just saying because I'm also a woman on the line. (laughs) Um, But yeah, recommend that people tune in for that because I know Shahrazad also has another interview lined up around uh, the Disrupt Land Forces. Oh, Um, great. Yeah, Disrupt Land Forces, uh, I guess, I don't know what to call um, it. It's a, a series of demonstrations that are happening, um, which we'll, we'll talk about a little more in headlines. Um, and then after that, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Libby Porter at the Center for Urban Research at RMIT University. 
And she's also a member of Save Public Housing Collective. And Libby joins us to provide a public housing focused analysis of the Victorian budget 2021-22. And finally... And finally, we're going to hear some more speeches from the Nam Nakbar Rally that was held on Saturday the 22nd of May outside of the State Library. Um, and yeah, that rally just continued to amplify calls to end the Gaza, Gaza siege and save Sheikh Jarrah and call for the end of Israeli colonisation beyond just a ceasefire. Yeah, and um, I guess maybe we can also jump straight into headlines as well. Um because a lot of what we're talking about is very timely, very topical, and it links into um, some of the stuff we've got for headlines for you. So um, first up, uh, just linking back to that disrupt land forces um, point, there was a there was a demonstration this past week at Port Melbourne at the uh, offices of Elbit Systems. And if people are not familiar with that, Elbit Systems is an Israeli arms manufacturer that is involved in... Um, producing uh, weaponry that they call battle-tested. And by battle-tested, what we really understand that to mean is uh, tested on Palestinian civilians, which is awful. Mm. Um, The Victorian government has a partnership with Elbit Systems and is uh, establishing a research facility. So there was a demonstration uh, in Port Melbourne on Tuesday at 1 p.m. and also in Port Melbourne at the Boeing offices as well, just to um, sort of you know, push back against the disruption, uh, sorry, the distribution of um, military technology uh, to these powers, including uh, the Indonesian government, the Israeli uh, government, um, and uh, yeah, governments around the world that are using these technologies to repress uh, predominantly indigenous people. So um, speeches there uh, included from Palestinian activists and West Papuan activists. Um, And yeah, Uh, really encourage people to keep up to date with what's happening with Disrupt Land Forces, uh, which is going from the 28th of May until, I believe, the 3rd or 4th of June. I'll Mm. have to double-check that. Mm. Um, But Disrupt Land Forces, um, predominantly the actions are happening um, in Minjin, and um, it's to... Uh, disrupt a, a big conference of these um, of these major arms dealers that is happening up there. So really encourage people to follow at Disrupt Land Forces on Instagram for more. Great. Thanks, Priya. Um, also, I just wanted to let listeners know, so this is um, another coronial inquest into um, a death that was um, just prior to custody um, of an Aboriginal man. So that's currently occurring over in Perth. Um, there's a coronial inquest into the death in custody of Mr. Riley. So he was a Noongar man um, who died after being tasered by police in Perth in May 2017. Um, that coronial inquest started this Tuesday. And if you don't know the story um, of Mr. Riley, please do um, try and read up on that. Um, he was fatally tasered up to 16 times after police responded to an incident in Perth. Um, that Mr. Riley had no involvement in. Yeah, it's absolutely tragic and really something to continue to keep an eye on. Um, This past week, we also saw uh, another demonstration organised by the family of Wayne Fellow Morrison um, in South Australia, um, basically continuing to protest uh, what the coroner um, Bashir has described as potential obstruction um, by the guards in the coronial process, um, where people are, you know, claiming privilege, um, pushing back, and we've recently heard some quite explosive claims that have been reported in the Guardian. So, uh, recommend people check that out uh, by, I believe, Royce Kermilov's, um 
which uh, cover the fact that um, a new witness has come forward and uh, including uh, managers of the facility who go into more detail about potential obstruction and um, yeah, tampering concerns. Um, so these are all alleged concerns that are being investigated. Um, and Malika, I believe we've also got a headline um, about the uh, Vic Forest Court. So this is a bit of a win. Um, so there's uh, there was something about uh, Bunnings Warehouse and responsibly sourced timber. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Bunnings has um, responded to a union plea for the Victorian government's help to negotiate um, with them over a ban to stock locally sourced hardware on its shelf. Um, by maintaining that the successful Victorian Courts um, Vic Forest Court appeal does not meet the state-owned forestry company um, in meeting the timber sourcing best practice. So this is a bit of an ongoing battle um, and, yeah, just something to keep an eye out on. Yeah, and it is, um, it's pretty exciting to see them um, push back quite firmly on you know, not reversing that decision to to use uh, trees logged in Victoria at this time. But we, you know, we really want to see more companies hold firm because uh, the Victorian government is sort of pushing forward with native forest logging, as we've seen um, in our conversations with Gecko over uh, over the past months. Mm. Um, and I also just wanted to remind listeners that if you haven't already, please sign and share the petition to ban spit hoods in South Australia, and that's part of the Justice for Fella campaign. Um, so sign the petition, and also you can donate to the Justice for Fella campaign on GoFundMe, and um, it'd be really good as well if you can phone and email minister tazia at southaustralia.gov.au and also call him on 0883030670. He is the Minister for Corrections in South Australia and they really need to legislate the immediate and permanent ban of spit hoods because too many people are dying in custody because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know if you if you email, they might say that they've already committed to this, but it really is calling for immediate and permanent ban and also a ban of any analogous kind of mm. um, equipment being used. And finally, um, just wanted to boost the fact that RISE um, ex-detainees are uh, currently running their food bank drive for the month. And so... Uh, if you want to chip in for the next shop, you can go to givenow.com.au slash rise refugee. And this month, 10% of funds raised will go to Justice for Fela to pay the rent. Um, so, yeah, please head there. Um, Give Generously Rise is led by ex-detainees and it's the only organization of its kind uh, to provide that kind of work. Um, and they really need your help. And um now I reckon we might uh, we might jump to a CSA before we uh, get onto the harm reduction rally audio. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Yan.
You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And now we're going to hear some excerpts of speeches that were at the rally to support harm reduction in the inner west that was held in Nicholson Mall on Saturday. So first up, we're going to hear um, from the co-chair Phoebe MacDonald and Liz Walsh from Victorian Socialists. Abstinence isn't viable for everyone. Harm reduction saves lives. We're gathered here today to mobilise against the right-wing Bernie Finn. Harm reduction saves. We need to broadcast this. Let's stop stereotyping drug addiction. Drug addiction isn't dirty, but condemning people who are dependent is. I would now like to invite Sione Crawford to the stage. He's from Harm Reduction Victoria. He's a peer advocate. Harm Reduction Victoria, where I'm from, which is a drug user organisation uh, made up of peers, people with past and living current experience of uh, injecting and other drug use, uh, has been funded since 1987 to do harm reduction work. And I think that what's really important to, to kick off with is that people who use drugs are part of our community. Uh, we're in this crowd, we're not in this crowd, we're probably in the crowd that was here on Wednesday night as well. Um, and. Uh, the, Services, we, we, we are part of, this, the, uh, part of society and actually uh, deserve to have uh, services for us as well. Harm reduction's um, main, one of a uh, harm reduction sort of guiding principle is accepting people for who they are and where they are and uh, supporting them to live longer ultimately, which is exactly what injecting rooms are for. And um, people who inject and use drugs have been part of the response to HIV, AIDS, hepatitis C, overdose and other um, health issues that affect people who, who use drugs. We've been fighting to, for society to see it as a health issue for a very long time. Unfortunately, it's still a criminal issue. So people like me are not very happy to come out and speak about being a drug user in front of crowds like this because of the hate that happens on Wednesday night. So what I really would like to uh, get across is that uh, for people who think it's okay to hate other people in their society just for an attribute, for a health issue, uh, you should be ashamed. and. Uh, harm reduction is actually about eliminating or trying to eliminate those attitudes as well as keeping people safe. I lost track of the number of people that I know that have died from an overdose when it hit about nine. I just stopped counting. I'm sick of it and uh, injecting rooms like North Richmond, their first goal is to save lives. Their second, third and fourth goals are other things and way down the list is improving amenity because people who inject drugs and use drugs are part of our community and although this labelled as undesirable and uh, that we want to get them off the streets by certain politicians, uh, what's undeniably true is that people who use drugs have been with us for many, 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 many years and decades. For basically since the start of time, people have used drugs. We're not going to eliminate drug use. Harm reduction is about keeping people safe for as long as possible while they're using and that might be to the end of their life. So. Um, trying to sweep it under the carpet is pointless. Our position and our uh, ideal is to have a number of injecting rooms around uh, Victoria and around Melbourne. They don't all have to be massive medically supervised injecting rooms like North Richmond. That's done a great job though. So, uh, uh, now said, we're going to hear from uh, two speakers from Flat Out Inc. Uh, Flat Out are an amazing community organisation. They've been around for about 30 years I believe uh, and they do incredible work uh, supporting women who have been criminalised, women who are in the prison system or who've been, who are out, advocating for them, fighting for their human rights. Uh, and so, yeah, we're really, really honoured to have them uh, speaking here today. Uh, the first speaker we're going to hear from is Yasmin Jensen-Solion. Uh, 
Yasmin works uh, in particular as an intake worker and support worker. Uh, and uh, she's also going to talk about her lived experience, which is incredibly important uh, to hear about. So thank you, Yas. Hi, everyone. I'm Yasmin. Um, as Liz said, I work for Flat Out. Um, I have quite an extensive lived experience of family violence and AOD use. Um, a few years ago, I was homeless in, uh, in the CBD of Melbourne. Um, I was a heavy, heavy drug user. Um, finding somewhere safe to use was just absolutely ridiculously hard. Um, I resorted to using down laneways, um, shady staircases, <laughs> um, and got myself into some pretty sticky situations with other people where I'd be stood over for drugs or, um, you know, using in really dirty places and, and putting dirty, basically dirty drugs in my arm. Um, which in turn, you know, gave me pretty bad reactions and there was no healthcare around to help me. Um, I think the supervised injecting facility in Richmond, had that been around when I was homeless and using, would have saved me from some pretty scary situations. Um, and I definitely would have used it. So I think having somewhere safe for people to use is so important. Um, decreases the risk of overdose and, um, you know, ambul ambulance is just not coming out. Um, when I was homeless, friends of mine overdosed and we called the ambulance in Richmond and they just wouldn't turn up half the time. Um, so, yeah, I think somewhere safe for people to use, in particular women, um, is just really important. <laughs> is uh, Ray Alfonso. Ray uh, does work uh, particularly in advocacy and research uh, and is a project officer who looks in particular at questions of family violence that women experience and their connections as well to AOD and criminalisation. So thank you, Ray. So um, yeah, I'm Ray. I work on the Family Violence Justice Project at Flat Out. Um, it's largely training and advocacy around the intersections between family violence and criminalisation. And a lot of that advocacy centres on the fact that family violence, criminalisation and problematic substance use, these are not matters of personal or moral individual failing. They are social issues that highlight how privilege and power moves in our world. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, I know that everyone is here because they know that harm minimisation saves lives and because we choose research and science and good sense over scaremongering. But I guess the question is, if we're trying to build a, mobilise a movement and a response, how do we take this to the broader community in a way that they will understand? And the neatest way I can think of to frame it is that recreational substance use is not problematic in and of itself. And problematic substance use is not recreational. <laughs> problematic substance use is one thread in a bigger story of health and well-being. And in almost 20 years of frontline service work, I'm yet to hear a story that is not at its core about someone trying to survive and thrive. And thriving is made a lot less possible when the state frames health issues as a matter of morality. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR
And just then we heard some speeches from the harm reduction rally that was to support um, yeah, harm reduction in the inner west on Saturday, May 22nd. And now we're going to head to an interview that Rosie from 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast had with Fernanda Rodriguez, who is a member of the Colombian community living in Melbourne. Fernanda is an engineer and a member of Solidarity for Colombia. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. This morning, I'm joined by Fernanda Rodriguez, a member of the Colombian community living in Melbourne. She's an engineer and a member of Solidarity for Colombia. The group have been raising funds to support first line groups, um, Colombian activist groups on the front line in Colombia. And she joins me to discuss that work and also the ongoing protests and strikes across the country. Welcome, Fernanda. Hi, Rosie. Good morning. How have you been? Thanks for having me in your, in your radio station. Um, well, um, I'm Fernanda Rodriguez. It's a, I am a Colombian uh, who has been living in Melbourne for three years. And I'm an engineer and I'm a member of Solidarity for Colombian Group. The main object is to, at the moment, raising funds for the first line, which is an activist group within Colombia. Thank you for joining us. So I just wanted to begin, um, the protests in Colombia began on April 28th, so that's almost a full month ago now, when right-wing President Duque proposed tax increases amid the third wave of the coronavirus pandemic. Can you try and give listeners an overview of um, where these protests started and talk a bit about what has sustained them for so long? Yeah, sure. Well... The current protests in Colombia are deeper than a tax reform can encompass due to the history of right-wing governments and neoliberal policy um, that has contributed to decades long build-up social dysfunction leading to the protests and riots that are occurring today. The pandemic um, has revealed the lack of investment in social programs and the poor conditions of our health systems. Uh, due to this basic lack of welfare, Colombia has more than 80,000 deaths for COVID-19. Uh, during during this time, uh, the government of Duque has delayed the rollout of the vaccine during the lockdown. And the lack of support from the government has been particularly hard during this time due to people not being able uh, to make a living or provide income for the families. Um, well, Duque's response to any form of protest has been to expand anti-riot squad and also to buy new anti-riot tanks or, and weapons. So it is clear well, that the current Colombian government is prioritizing a war against civilians that, who, well, basically they claim for the rights the protest continues because Duque's government refuses to negotiate and communicate um, with the people that have been marching on the streets for almost one one month. Instead, so Ivan Duque uh, accuses the the protesters to be terrorists and vandals, and he's uh, well at the moment he's sending police forces in to break up any forms of protest. Uh, in a violent manner, uh, so well we can consider that he's promoting the violence 
in in our country. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I don't know, such a hard uh, situation to try and describe in a short amount of time. We were saying off air, like, it is like both the situation with um, COVID-19 and the lack of support and also just a general social inequity and inequality in the country and then kind of disregard from the government. But you were speaking there as well about the violent crackdown that has been... um, been the response of the government to these protests so um, there's been yeah killings unfortunately in like at least 43 protesters have been killed there's been injuries there's been mass arrests there's been sexual assaults by police and other armed vigilantes so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this crackdown um, and also the response of protesters in the face of this violence yeah sure well the violence has generated a social resistance that has spread across the country. They basically you know, claim to be heard, and also they want to make public that Colombia basically is not a prosperous OECD liberal democracy country that Duque promotes internationally. In response, the protesters have made groups called the First Line, concentrated in different points of the cities, they have found a way to protect themselves, uh, basically by um, by making like their own shoes, wearing helmets, gloves, and face masks to protect themselves from cruel attacks from the police. Many Colombians in the country and from overseas also uh, are supporting the first line by providing donations destined to get uh, food, first aid, protection, medicines, and injury rescue. Unfortunately, um, the Duke's government opted for ignoring the protesters and um, preferring to start a violent crackdown. Yeah, basically that is yeah mm. the, the current situation. Yeah, and I just wanted so uh, along with those front uh, first line groups that you're talking about, could you also talk a bit about who um, is leading these protests? I know that there were indigenous leaders involved, um, a lot of young people, and also talk about the demands you talked about a general, um, you know, anger about the lack of rights and um, lack of equality in the country. But what are the demands that the protesters are making and who, who are they? Well, um, they, they are basically youth in Colombia. They want to be sure and they basically ask to stop the violent crackdown. And also, uh, they want to be sure they request peace, equality, employment, access to technical and professional education, protection of the environment. There are many things that uh, they are asking right now, but there are yeah the main ones. Um, also, unions have had some conversations with Duque's government. However, most of the um, protesters that are in the in the new generations, they don't feel represented by the unions. The current demonstrations are being led by young people who are unemployed mm. and without access to technical and yeah and professional education, supported by students, indigenous communities, laborers, peasants, middle classes, also Afro Colombian descendants. Um they have been excluded and ignored over the time by the Colombian state. Yeah, so even just the, the number of groups that you're talking about there, I think, like, I'm not sure for listeners if they know, but just the scale of these protests, they are really huge um, and spanning across the country. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's that is correct. Yeah, at the moment, um, well, the situation starts at the beginning in the capital city in Bogota and the other main cities in Colombia, but the problem has escalated in a in a high uh, proportion and um, mainly everywhere in the country has been riots and yeah and problems with the uh, well, with police and the army that are uh, behaving in in a violent violent way to, uh, against the, pro- the protesters yeah mm. and um you spoke a little bit about covid-19 at the beginning and like the lack of rollout of the vaccine how are protesters at the moment able to cope with COVID-19 in Colombia and what's going on with the pandemic? How has that affected um, other social issues and, yeah, where where is it at right now? Well, to be honest, for people who are protesting, they feel as though the situation in the country has reached a level of corruption that they feel as though they have nothing to lose from attending protests Mm. and risking infection from COVID-19. Yeah, it has a world. As I mentioned before, the pandemic revealed the inequality and the lack of financial and social support from the government to the vulnerable families and a small business um, before and during the pandemic. This has led to increases in the financial crisis, unemployment, violence and riots on the streets. Today, Colombia has more than 80,000 deaths from COVID. Um, and also Colombia uh, is in the position number 12 for cumulative cases in the world, and uh, as well as the lower rate of vaccination doses in Latin America, and well, probably just 12% of the population has received one dose. The, uh, also, the, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic basically in Colombia has caused the greatest economic recession in, in, in at least a generation. Uh, well, uh, the United Nations also reported that the poverty rate in Colombia is now the highest in South America. Mm-hmm. The Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean reported that almost 37% of Colombians live below the poverty line and the end of the last year of 2020. Uh, poverty increased significantly while the country's three richest men owning more than 10% of the country's GDP. Could you believe that? Mm. Um, Colombia almost has 51 million people hmm? and between 18 million and something like 23 million Colombians live on less than 91 uh, American dollar a month in 2020. So of this uh, well, 15 million meets one meal a day and the remaining were were near starvation. So this is a a terrible number. I think this is not possible that in my country uh, live under those conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's as you say, that's why um, so many Colombians feel that they have absolutely nothing to lose by being on the street, even in the face of COVID-19 and this terrible, violent crackdown from the government. It still feels like that's a better option uh, at the moment than, than, yeah, that kind of terrible poverty. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. 
In the in 2016, I wanted to ask about like the historical context of the peace agreement between the FARC and um, the Colombian government. I know there was a peace agreement signed. I, I'm wondering if that is important in this current political um, crisis or um, current political protests. Yeah, it is really important. Well, uh, the former president, Juan Manuel Santos, signed the peace agreement with the FARC in 2016. Um, but in 2018, uh, Ivan Duques was elected on a promise to substantially modify <laughs> the peace agreement. Mm. Uh, president Duque himself has subjected to the statutory law that governs the special jurisdiction for peace. Since the beginning of his presidential term, Ivan Duque government has discouraged the peace agreement between the FARC and the Colombian government, and he and his party, Centro Democratico, has declared the continuous objection to the, spe- to the special jurisdiction for peace. And also, well, the number um, of its com- its combatants of the demobilized FARC guerrilla assassinated since since the signing of the peace agreement in November 2016 in Colombia amounted to 270, according to the left communist political party. Mm-hmm. In addition, more than 900 social leaders uh, had been assassinated in Colombia, all occurring under leadership of Ivan Duque. Well, all these events have a crucial impact in the social and political situation of our country. Social leaders, NGOs, and the Colombian society try to establish peace. However, the right wins, uh, yeah, the right wins Paris, and the current government uh, refused to support and guarantee the peace agreement. Hmm. Mm. That is, yeah, the, the main problem, yeah. Thank you for kind of um, outlining a bit of that history for listeners. Um, I just wanted to ask to go back to the the first line groups that you were talking about, these um, groups in Colombia. So um, that your your group here, your Solidarity for Colombia group, are um, helping to support or raise funds to support. Could you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing here and how you're getting um, that support to the first line groups in Colombia? Yeah, uh, Rosie, thanks for asking me this question. Well, I consider that it is important that the international community help us to raise our voices and request probably to the Australian government, to us, Ivan Duque's government, to stop the violence against the civilians and hear the claims from from protesters. And in addition, our group, uh, the Solidarity for Colombia, we can uh, uh, ask for the Australians to collaborate in many different ways, for example, participating in the events that are organizing in the city by the Colombian community. There are different events as food festival, baskets to get some funds. Uh, the initiative seeks to provide protection elements to young people so that they can defend their lives from the anti-riot squad. So if you are interested to help us, uh, probably you uh, well, you will be able to find us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, or Instagram or Facebook as Solidaridad Melbourne. Um, and there you will be able to see the posts uh, 
uh, with the information about the coming the coming events. That is Solidaridad, and it's spelled S-O-L-I-D-A-R-I-D-A-D, Solidaridad Melbourne. That's great. Thank you so much. And is there anything else that you wanted to cover, Fernanda, before we finish up? I, I know it's a really complex issue and obviously, um, <coughs> yeah, I feel I feel like there's so much more that we could go into. Was there any other kind of parts of the conversation that you wanted to extend on before we finish? Well, uh, well probably you can... Uh, yeah, I know that the language could be a barrier between the information that you can get here from the website um, from Colombia. But, however, you can uh, please uh, contact us using the Solidarity or the Solidarity app uh, for uh, Melbourne to get in contact with someone and of the Colombian from the Colombian community and talk or have a closer idea about what is happening in Colombia, and also please uh, try to help us because the situation currently in Colombia is so hard, it's very difficult, and the, um, well, the government uh, keeps uh, literally killing our citizens, they don't stop uh, the, this cruel war, and I think they they try to get in worse the situation in order to stop the next elections that uh, will be under in the next year on March. So probably the situation not gonna stop soon. So oh, well, we we really appreciate if you Australians can help us um, probably to yeah to talk with the politicians here or with other uh, journalists or what. Any kind of way that you can find easier to help us, uh, we really appreciate it. And just then, you heard a conversation with Fernanda Rodriguez, a member of the Colombian community living in Melbourne and organising with Solidarity for Colombia. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8 by 5 a.m. And now it's time to head into a track. This one is a new one from Muriel Spearham. This one is Sardine Baby.
And that song was Sardine Baby by Moriel Spiram, who's a Gamilare, Kuma, and Marawari woman. And she's weaved, uh, she's weaved her powerful contemporary voice with ancient language to command your attention and ignite your soul in that, signal, uh, in, in that new single, which was released um, on May 26th um, on Sorry Day. In honor of First Nations artist and Stolen Generation survivor Auntie Sharon Egan and all of the Stolen Generation members whose strength, compassion and resilience continues to inspire us to this day. So I really encourage people to go find out a bit more about that track, about um, Auntie Sharon Egan's story. And uh, yeah, it's just a really important thing to, to listen to and hold this week. And now we're going to go to an interview that Shahrazad Blul from Women on the Line did with Janine Harani. And um, Janine is a Palestinian activist who uh, is speaking about the current situation in Palestine. And uh, for people that want to hear that interview and uh, within the context of the whole Women on the Line program, that is coming up this Monday uh, from 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR, 855 a.m. And you can also listen back at 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. We will now hear from Janine Horani, who is a Palestinian activist, campaigner and storyteller. She is currently the director of Road to Refuge, 
an organisation that aims to change the narrative around refugees and people seeking asylum by transferring the power of narrative back to those directly impacted. Hi, Janine, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So firstly, can you give us an overview of the work you do with BDS or with the BDS movement and what the movement is calling for? Yeah, so um, BDS is a Palestinian-led movement for freedom, justice and equality. So as a movement, it aims to pressure the state of Israel to adhere to its human rights and international law obligations using the tools of boycott, divestment and sanction, hence BDS. So the boycott kind of component of it um, involves withdrawing individual support from Israel's apartheid regime. So this often looks like... um, withdrawing individual support from Israeli companies or companies engaged in violations of Palestinian human rights. So you might have heard of SodaStream and Puma being kind of recent um, targets for the boycott component of it. Um, the divestment, the D, um, it urges banks, local councils, super funds, universities to withdraw their investments from the state of Israel and all Israeli companies and companies that sustain Israeli apartheid. And then the S, sanctions, um, sanctions campaigns pressure governments to sanction Israel until the government fulfills its legal obligations. And what this looks like is usually ending military trade or ending free trade agreements um, or suspending Israel's membership in international forums like the UN. The strategies employed by BDS are inspired by the South African anti-apartheid movement. Um, And there are three key demands of BDS. um, And those demands are um, pressuring Israel to first um, end its occupation and colonization of Palestine and all Arab lands and dismantling the apartheid wall. Second, um, recognizing the fundamental rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality. And third, respecting, protecting and promoting the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and properties, which is actually stipulated in UN Resolution 194. Oh, I was going to ask uh, how you see VDS as part of a larger movement to end apartheid in Palestine, but you kind of... Yeah, I mean, I can still talk to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that um, even though that's kind of BDS in a nutshell, I think BDS is not only part, to your question, like BDS is not only part of a larger movement and apartheid in Palestine, but it's also part of a bigger movement for equality and justice around the world. I mean, boycotts have been proven to be effective throughout history. Um, BDS really draws on other grassroots movements such as the Irish Land League, the Indian Salt March, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, um, and as I mentioned, the International Boycott um, to End South African Apartheid. And as a movement, BDS really kind of continues to draw upon and learn from these different social justice struggles. Um, And because BDS draws upon and continues to learn from and build solidarity with these other struggles around the world, it really does look at things from a systems change perspective. Um, The kind of idea that solidarity between different movements stems from this understanding that it's the same underlying systems and structures that are the root cause of all our oppression. And so BDS aims to dismantle those systems. So if we're to take, for example, like the um, military industrial complex, which is a system, um, that is the system upon which Israel is built, upon many other systems. Um, And and the institutional violence and the militarization is kind of how Israel maintains its current regime. And if you look at Black Lives Matter in the US, a lot of US police are trained by the Israeli military and you're seeing we're seeing a militarization of the police force. 
If you look at Aboriginal deaths in custody here, kind of it's the same system that imprisons Indigenous kids here that also imprisons and incarcerates Palestinian kids. Um, and it's the same companies, same governments that are investing in weapons, um, manufacturing these weapons and continuing to oil the kind of global neo-imperial war machine. And so um, it's no surprise that a lot of our BDS targets like HP, G4S, Elbit Systems, um, they're kind of some of the most recent ones, while they are complicit in Israeli defense and security, they're also complicit in other human rights abuses all over the world. And so this systems change approach that BDS really adopts um, and the commitment to dismantling these systems really is another strength of the BDS movement, not only in Palestine, but kind of around the whole world. Beautifully answered. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you just touched upon the military industrial complex um, and we know that Israel is built on this. Um, it's also not ratified the arms treaty. Um, it doesn't report regularly to the UN registry on conventional arms and is among the 10 largest arms exporters worldwide. And Australia is the 16th largest importer or customer of, of Israeli military and security products. So, and that's behind India, who's the first, USA, who's the second, and Turkey, the third. These military and security products that Israel produces um, are promoted as battle-tested. Yeah. Um, and that is on the violent occupation and dispossession of Palestinian lands and people. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk to this a bit more and... Um, specifically around Australia's complicity within this? Yeah, the Australian government has a very long history of enabling and supporting Israel in its violent settler colonial endeavours. And I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone because that's the foundation upon which this settler colony was built in so-called Australia. Um, and it kind of goes as far back as actually as 1917 um, – which is the year the Balfour Declaration was signed. But in that same year, in 1917, um, British colonists in Palestine um, wanted to change the so-called barren landscape of Palestine, which obviously isn't barren to us, but for European eyes potentially might be look a little bit barren. Um, and so they brought white Australians from the so-called Commonwealth um, to Palestine and they planted eucalyptus trees on our land. And eucalyptus trees are not native to Palestine. And what that did was that demarcated where Palestinian villages are located. And so decades later, when the Israeli Offence Force um, wanted to conduct airstrikes on Palestinians, they didn't need to know where the Palestinian villages were. They just looked for the eucalyptus trees, which they could see from the sky. And that's how they knew where... That's how they knew where Palestinian villages were. And so, you know, and that was all enabled by the Australian settler colony and the, and the so-called Commonwealth and Australians going and planting eucalyptus trees. And so it really is a very, very long history of enabling the genocide and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people. And, yeah, it's really is part of the legacy of this country. Um and of course now, like the Australian government continues to fund Israel's military. Um, in the past, it's had billion dollar contracts with Elbit Systems. So um, Elbit is an Israeli security company um, that, as you mentioned, field tests its weapons on Palestinians. Um, and yeah, the Australian government has had billion dollar contracts with them in the past. And um and actually, to speak to the point around um, transnational solidarity as well, Elbit is also complicit in West Papua, Myanmar, the Philippines, Colombia, and of course, Palestine. And I guess the most recent development with regards to Elbit is um, the Victorian state government currently has a $6 million contract with them to establish a research centre right here in Nam or Melbourne, um, actually in Port Melbourne. Um, and so the complicity in Israeli war crimes really is ongoing, not just from our federal government, but also from the Victorian state government. 
Yeah, and often when um, these things are talked about, they're, they're talked about as, um, especially when it comes to the occupation in Palestine, it's talked about as a foreign, as a foreign issue mm. rather than it being interconnected and intertwined with what happens here. Yeah. And also, just before we heard from Zelda, who works with the uh, Make West Papua Safe campaign, um, and part of that campaign is highlighting the complicity of states and large corporations in the destruction and colonisation of West Papua. And, you know, further to what you were just talking about, but could you explain how you see these as intertwined? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think at its core, the Palestinian struggle is not unique. Um, what Israel maintains is a regime of settler colonialism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing and occupation. And none of these concepts are new. They've all existed or currently exist. Um, you know, they've all existed at some point throughout history or still kind of the legacy lives on. Um, this country's so-called Australia is built on settler colonialism. We're all familiar with apartheid South Africa, what's happening in West Papua, what's happening in Kashmir, that's occupation, what's happening in East Turkestan is ethnic cleansing. We can really rattle off like, you know, all of these social justice issues and all of these forms of oppression happening all over the world and think about how they are all connected to each other. And I think the sooner that we realise and acknowledge the interconnectedness of our struggles, the sooner we can really not only build but strengthen those lines of solidarity um, and, like I kind of mentioned earlier, from a systems change perspective, start thinking about how we can dismantle these systems and structures um, that underpin all of our struggles. And this is already happening. Like there's already these transnational lines of solidarity being built. There's um, a long history of um, solidarity between the Black Lives Matter um, movement and Palestinian liberation, you know, from Ferguson to Palestine. That's been ongoing for a really long time. And um, Angela Davis has spearheaded that for years and years. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier as well about how a lot of the police force in the US are trained by the Israeli military. And as soon as you start realising those kind of common struggles, you can start to unpack um, and challenge those systems and structures. There's a growing movement around black Palestinian solidarity here. Um, so between Indigenous people um, here in so-called Australia and um, Palestinian people, um, which was really spearheaded by Uncle Gary Foley. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a black Palestinian solidarity conference and a lot of these um, lines of solidarity have been growing. And I've actually been so amazed um, and grateful for the immense solidarity that we've seen from First Nations people over the past three weeks of things as things have unfolded in Palestine. So we had an Elbert action um, on the 25th of May um, and as part of that it was um, organised by the um, Free West Papua group but um, there was groups from Philippines, from West Papua, from Palestine. We had speakers from all of those places and it really went to show kind of how Elbert Systems and other companies that are complicit in Palestine are also complicit in other places. And so we are really seeing these lines of solidarity being built and strengthened and I think um, – for me personally, that's the strongest thing that's come out of the last three weeks. And I really hope um, if we maintain, I mean, hopefully we'll maintain the momentum in all of the ways, but if we were to maintain it in in um, one of the ways, it would be um, ensuring that those transnational lines of solidarity continue to be strengthened. The court ruling on Sheikh Jarrah is on Monday, the 31st of May. So what are the next steps for the movement? Yeah, so, um, yeah, the evictions were postponed until the 30th of May and that really was um, as a result of kind of the local and international outcry and um, it, it is encouraging to see that our voices um, are being heard and the pressure we're putting on is working. Um, 
But I guess regardless of the outcome of that court hearing, um, this didn't start with Sheikh Sharrah. This has been ongoing for 73 years. What happened to my granddad's village um, in 1948 is not unlike what happened to Sheikh Sharrah. And so this is um, a long, it has been a long struggle and it certainly won't end with Sheikh Sharrah either. You know, there's, um, the struggle is going to, continue to be ongoing. And so it's really important that we maintain the momentum and maintain the rage and continue to show up for Palestine and Palestinians. Um, most immediately, um, BDS Australia, our current campaign against Elbit Systems, our kind of objective of that campaign is um, to get the Victorian government to cancel their contract with Elbit Systems. Um and we kind of realised that um, in order for a research centre to get up, um, Elbert is going to need to um, is going to need to partner with a local university in Victoria. And so, um, because of that, we're mobilising and organising university students to try and get them to reject Elbert Systems and get their universities to reject partnerships with Elbert Systems. Um, and so as part of that, on the 9th of June at 5pm, um, location to be confirmed. But if you follow BDS Australia on socials, you'll get um, all the updates. Um, we're going to hold a meeting with university students to kind of strategize about the best ways to organize on campus. And hopefully that'll become a springboard for kind of more BDS actions on campus and really hoping to, to keep that going. Um, and then we're also running, um, not BDS Australia, we're, um, separately, we're also running... Um, Black Palestinian Poetry Night. So um, on the 26th of June um, in uh, Melbourne at 4pm at Drill Hall and July 3rd in Gadigal, Sydney um, at Bankstown Community Arts. Um, and there'll be amazing Black, um, Indigenous and Palestinian poets um, at those events. And it'll just be a really great way to kind of, um, yeah, continue building those lines of solidarity and the commonality of our struggles and um, the commitment to anti-colonial struggles um, from so-called Australia to so-called Israel. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Lukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient, and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shunatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika. Assalamu 
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And it has just gone 8 AM. And uh, you just heard an interview uh, by Shahrazad Blul from Women on the Line with Janine Hurani. Um, and they were speaking about the situation in Palestine, but also uh, Elbit Systems and Israeli arms uh, manufacturing and the sort of global connections with that. Um, Just another reminder to check the Victorian Government Department of Health and Human Services website uh, for coronavirus updates to find out exposure sites, whether you need to get tested, and um, please stay safe. And now we're going to go to an interview with Professor Libby Porter at the Center for Urban Research, RMIT University, and who's also a member of Safe Public Housing Collective. And Libby joins us to provide a public housing-focused analysis of the Victorian budget 2021. So hi, Libby. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Priya. Thanks for talking about uh, this important issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know that the terminology can get a bit confusing. To pr- so to provide a bit of background to our discussion, um, would you mind starting off by taking us through some of the differences between the umbrella term social housing and then community and public housing and how these are different from private rental properties? Sure. So the the differences between these things is really important. Um and I'm sorry to pause, but can you hear an echo on the line or is that just at my end? No, no, you sound fine. Okay, good. Uh, so the term social housing is indeed an umbrella category, as you just said. So it refers to a whole range of non-market forms of housing that include both public housing and community housing uh, and often other kinds of housing too. So housing formed through a, co- a collective or a cooperative, for example, would perhaps come under that kind of category. Um, The two biggest sort of uh, components of social housing, uh, certainly here in Victoria, are, as you said, public housing and community housing. So to be considered public housing, a dwelling has to be both owned and managed, so uh, the the tenancy managed and the property itself managed by what's now called Homes Victoria, if you like, by the government. Um, And and public housing tenants have their uh, rents capped at 25% of their income, uh, provides perfectly secure tenure, it's usually lifetime tenure, and it prioritises people in the greatest uh, need. In community housing, that refers to dwellings that are managed um, and or owned by uh, effectively non-profit private community housing organisations, many of which are operating um, in in the industry now. And in community housing, tenants pay around 30% of their income in rent, so higher rent, sometimes more than that, in fact. Their tenure is a bit less secure, um, and only 75% uh, of community housing uh, allocations have to go to those in the greatest need, so those on the priority wait list. So community housing is effectively more expensive for tenants. Um, it's privatised uh, in, in, those, in those terms. Um, it's less secure, and we're also seeing some pretty disturbing trends come out of um, BCAP where uh, there's evidence that suggests that community housing uh, tenants are more likely to find themselves uh, forced out through eviction. Yeah, absolutely. It is so important to differentiate between those because... Um, you know, as we've seen with last year's big housing bill, which we, we will touch on, um, there's this obfuscation about the type of um, of housing that's being invested in. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's so, right. And sorry, you asked me about private rental. Oh, so yes, go ahead. Term, let, me, let me clarify that. The difference between all of those things and private rental um, is, of course, that private rental is when you're renting a, a, a dwelling in the market from a private landlord. Um, now, and we also see lots of kind of slippage in the terms um, 
that are discussed at the moment, and including in the big housing build and in the recent um, budget uh, announcement, where uh, you know something like affordable housing, this is a term that gets used a lot, it is, is really meaningless. Um, I, I would strongly advocate that we really stop using the term affordable housing because it mm. doesn't really have a meaning. Um, sometimes it's called key worker housing, where, uh, say, people are offered subsidised rents, say, at maybe 80% of market rents, to uh, workers in particular kinds of fields like nurses and teachers, police officers and those kinds of folk. Um, but affordable housing in and of itself doesn't mean anything. I mean, effectively, all housing should be affordable. Mm-hmm. We should all be able to afford to live in a dwelling. So it's kind of meaningless. Um, and what we really need to do is get to grips with what the problem is uh, and, and around homelessness and housing insecurity uh, and, and address that properly. And, and we're not currently doing that. Yeah, definitely. And, and this language isn't helping. So... Um in terms of housing expenditure in the Victorian budget 2021-22, uh, which uh, was handed down last week, uh, this included an initiative called the Public Housing Renewal Package Number 1 Ground Lease Model, um, which is mm. set to deliver 1,100 dwellings across existing sites in Brighton, Flemington and Paran. So can you take us through some of the local context of public housing at these sites and the shift in proportion of different types of housing that you talked about before that this budget initiative is meant to create? Yes, absolutely. So this is a really interesting um, little story uh, and one that's very revealing of, of kind of what's going on here. So these three sites, the New Street Brighton, uh, a site in Racecourse Road in Flemington and at Bang Street, Paran, are all um, previously public housing sites. They've all had 100% public housing for quite a long time. Um, they, over the last few years, they've um, progressively been basically demolished. All the communities have been forcibly displaced and um, people relocated elsewhere. Um, uh, and the buildings have now uh, pretty much been demolished and they're sort of empty sites. Some, some of them have been empty for quite a while. So what the government has done is repackaged this into one of its kind of... Um, government seem to like sort of fancy financing models that uh, tend to obscure some of the details about what's mm. going on here. And they're calling this this ground lease model. Um, so as far as we can tell what's going on here uh, is that all of the dwellings will be delivered as as community housing. So they'll all be through these uh, not-for-profit not private community housing organisations with these differentials, as I mentioned before, in, in rent and security and those kinds of things. So there'll be around 620 social housing dwellings um, and then there'll be this package of 126 what they frame as affordable dwellings. Nobody knows what that means. Uh, and 365 market rentals. Um, and there's an inclusion in there of some uh, specialist disability accommodation, but the, the, the language in the budget announcement is very unclear about how that would be managed and, mm. and, and and delivered. Um, so in in essence, what we've got is um, 100% public housing sites with what used to have uh, around 445 public housing dwellings on those together, like collectively on those sites, um, all of which has been lost. And we're gaining um, at around 174 additional dwellings. So the difference between the loss of 445 and the, the gain of um, 619, I think it is, adds up to 174 is the, is the gain in social housing dwellings that we get on that site. Um, so there's this really big shift from public housing, which has been completely demolished and uh, and done away with and shifting to more privatised forms of housing, including market rental dwellings uh, on that site, so quite higher densities and, and those kinds of things. So this is 
pretty worrying um, because it really signals uh, a, a kind of real, a real uh, explicit stepping away of government from the provision, the direct provision of public housing. Something we've been noticing for at least the last 20 to 30 years um, across Australia, but particularly in Victoria. But this this investment model signals a, a particular version of this, and a lot of the detail of the uh, the, the public. Um, investment in this model and what we get back for it is extremely murky mm -hmm. but looks highly questionable. So we're paying for this um, out of the taxpayer's uh, dot, you know, purse uh, $500 million to deliver an uplift uh, an additional amount of really only 175 social housing dwellings. Mm. Um, and by, by our calculations, because um, community housing providers only have to give, uh, allocate, you know, up to 75% or at least, sorry, at least 75% of their, uh, their allocations to people on the priority wait list, um, our calculations suggest that the number of extra dwellings on that site that will now be available to house the people who are in the greatest and most urgent housing need is nine. Nine dwellings. My goodness. For $500 million um, that will actually go to the people who need it most urgently right now, who are sleeping rough in their cars, who are living in dilapidated houses, uh, who are you know couch surfing and um, managing all sorts of trauma and, and problems in their life. I mean, I find that personally just so affronting yeah. as a member of a society that's supposed to look after people um, in, the, in, in a better way. I, I just... I think it's a, a real crime. No, it's it's absolutely um, it's absolutely appalling. And you know, being across the the language that's used to describe this, which is constantly shifting, is um, unfortunately such a big part of you know being able to parse uh, what these changes mean. Um, it so, is. Yeah. So, can you contextualise this package within the broader changes that were announced as part of the Victorian government's big housing build last year, which uh, was a proud announcement about a historic five point three billion dollars to construct over twelve thousand new homes across metro and regional Victoria? That's right, um, and it was a very big, proud announcement. Uh, and initially, uh, we were hopeful that, wow, this could be uh, the thing we've all been waiting for. So much um, public investment uh, into, uh, you know, what, what we all call the housing crisis, uh, which, of course, has been a crisis for a very long time, um, you know, since colonial invasion, right? Mm. So, um, unfortunately, the, the the analysis reveals that it's it's uh, not everything that's being sung and danced about. Um, it's it's a Effectively, the same kind of package, just with slightly different language and, and packaged up in different kinds of ways. And, and again, as you say, um, and especially for your listeners, uh, how important it is to understand the language um, here, because social housing and community housing, um, it just sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Like, it's nothing to... It's a bit like sustainability. You, you, mm -hmm. can't, you can get on board with that. You can get on board with community housing. You think, that sounds great. Let's have more of that. Um, unfortunately, uh, there is certainly a role for community housing, absolutely. Um, and I, I think that... that that portion of the of the uh, housing sector should grow, but it's growing at the expense of public housing, mm -hmm. um, and all of the um, investment is going into that form of housing and being dragged out 
um, of public housing at a time when we, we really need to be doing the opposite. Uh, so, so that's really the problem here. It's not about saying we're anti-community housing or anything. Um, it's about noticing what is actually at stake here, what's actually going on. Um, so really ch um, you know, encourage listeners to, to listen carefully to some of the, that language and unpack it a little bit more um, and use the material that uh, certainly uh, Safe Public Housing Collective is, is working with to try and uh, help everybody understand that a little bit better because it is kind of complex. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the big housing build uh, pr pronounced, as you said, um, sort of around 12,000 new dwellings in a, ra in a range of packages. Um, the one that's perhaps most similar to the uh, the thing that we were just talking about in the, the current uh, budget announcement uh, is what they call the fast start housing on Homes Victoria land, so on, on effectively um, land that's already owned and earmarked for, for housing. Um, that uh, amount was around $532 million in that first announcement, that was that big housing build. Um, and, and in that, the, the whole of the uh, attention is on existing public housing estates. So part of what happens in these announcements is we get told a number. So they say we'll build 500 new social housing dwellings on these sites. Now, those sites already have public housing on them. Mm -hmm. But the loss of that public housing is never counted in, in what's mm. built as new. So we hear 500 and we think, oh, that's amazing. But actually, the net gain is already 446 public housing dwellings on them, on those sites. So the net gain is only 54. Mm -hmm. um, so when we actually look at the investment, it's a tiny uplift for an enormous investment of money um, where, where we're not even counting uh, the, the community health and wellbeing impacts of people being forcibly displaced and communities being destroyed uh, and, and the loss of the public asset, um, if you want to think about it in those terms. So there's, there's lots to be concerned yeah. about in these kinds of models that are being put up as the kind of new way to do, um, to do social housing delivery. Yeah, and and I really appreciate you highlighting that sort of um, the 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 net gain, which is um, ultimately what is sort of left out of a lot of these um, um, promotional materials. That, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I was also wondering regarding the state of already existing public housing properties. What's your assessment of capital upgrade investments in public housing in this budget? Yes, there is um, some capital upgrade investment, and that's really welcome. Um, it's urgently needed at a number of sites. Um, many, anyone in public housing will tell you that uh, because uh, the, the government seems to sort of uh, not deal very well with its responsibilities as, as a social landlord and any number of Auditor General reports over the last few years have pointed exactly to that problem and said uh, this, is a, this is a huge issue. Part of the problem is that um, there isn't actually in uh, the every, every annual budget a kind of dedicated amount that, that goes to public housing, to just do the normal things that we would expect of any landlord in any housing system to maintain the properties and, you know, invest in them and improve them and do all those kinds of things. It, it always seems to be a kind of a, a fight to do things. So we get little announcements like, uh, you know, hooray, we're doing, uh, you know, gas heater fittings with was the latest one um, in, in last year, mm. uh, which shouldn't really, in my view, be something that you know, we should sort of hang our hats on. It should just be kind of part of what we're doing anyway, because we're, we're social uh, we're, we're social landlords who are responsible for uh, making sure that people's lives are comfortable and um, and, and mm. all of those kinds of things and safe. Uh, so. Uh, 
you know, it's very important that we've got those those upgrades. They're, they're probably nowhere near enough. Um, it's hard to gauge that um, mm-hmm. without, you know, proper uh, data because it, it's very hard to get data on these kinds of uh, issues from the from Home Victoria and, and the government. Um, so we welcome the investment. Uh, we would like to see much more investment of that kind mm-hmm. and we would like to see this kind of investment that's being reoriented away from public housing to community housing organisations to just come back to public housing and be used to improve and maintain and upgrade uh, the existing sites so that we don't lose any more. We need a moratorium on on the sale and loss of public housing sites, Mm. including the loss of transferring them to community housing organisations. That needs to stop um, and we need to reassess what we're doing. We need to look at the models uh, that we absolutely know work to house people in crisis uh, and invest in that direction. Absolutely. So um, just going towards wrapping up, and this is a bit of a double-barreled question. Um, So yourself and David Kelly developed a public housing-focused analysis of the budget. Um, What alternative do you suggest for government investment in public housing? And also, where can people find out more about Safe Public Housing Collective and read that analysis? Ah, sure, yes, we would love to have people involved. Um, so to answer your, your second question first, um, the, uh, the Safe Public Housing Collective, you can find us, if you Google that, you'll find us. Um, we're a group of uh, public housing tenants and allies, uh, people who believe in the importance of, of uh, public housing. Uh, please get involved, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, places like that, um, and you can read more material on our website that we are trying to help everybody understand uh, why this is so important. Um, and on that website, you'll find uh, David and my analysis, or our collective analysis, really, um, but David and I mm-hmm. crunched the numbers uh, of, of the current budget announcement and a range of other resources that uh, the collective has provided for everyone um, pulling together our, on our uh, materials. Uh, and in that, you'll find uh, we set out an alternative, um, and we've written about this in, in other places as well around the use of public land, but essentially it costs around $300,000 to deliver one public housing dwelling, probably a bit cheaper on public land. So if we just simply used the $500 million that was announced um, all for community housing on these three sites in the current budget, um, we deliver about 2,300 or so, a bit more, public housing dwellings on those sites. Um, and that could potentially house up to 5,800 people on the priority wait list if we just did direct provision of public housing, um, which is pretty well known to be uh, the thing to do uh, and and the most cost-effective way to deliver uh, proper public housing. Yeah, it's... So you can follow us there. Yes, um, I really encourage people to read that analysis. And Libby, thank you so much for for cutting through all the jargon and, and explaining this for us today. I really appreciate you making the time. Pleasure, Priya. Thanks for talking about this important issue. Awesome. And that was a conversation with Professor Libby Porter at the Centre for Urban Research, RMIT University, who spoke with us uh, about a public housing-focused analysis of the Victorian budget 2021-22. And now we're just going to go to a speech by Sama Sabawi at the NARM Melbourne Nakba Rally held on Saturday, 22nd May at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. All right, we've got our next speaker. Um, Sama Sabawi, can you come up, please? Samasabal is a Palestinian, you may have heard of her before. She is a Palestinian activist and a prolific writer for Palestine. Give her a round of applause. Hello everyone. Um, A special hello to my grandkids who are at the protest for the first time. 
I would like to also begin. I would also like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I stand on and the land that I've been exiled from. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Palestinian people in the grip of Israeli occupation. And to pay my respect to all freedom fighters, past and present, here and there. Palestine will be free, and this land will always be Aboriginal. It's important for me to do this, because as I lend my voice to the cause of justice in my homeland, in Palestine, I must acknowledge that I live on stolen land, where the indigenous people here still have no justice. And that since the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788, massacres of indigenous First Nations were committed to wipe out their resistance and to eradicate their opposition in the same way that since 1948, Palestinians have endured. I'm aware, as I watch Israel's violence against my people, that similar horrors were committed here Different weapons, different times, for same crime. I know colonization in the way that only a colonized people do. I know struggle and resistance for freedom and liberation in the same way what people who have been oppressed do. And I know that without equality, no society deserves to thrive. And I know that key to our survival is your solidarity. So thank you, Lydia, for being here today. And thank you for all of you who have come to stand with us in solidarity, in real, effective, genuine acts that make us feel like our lives are actually worthwhile because watching the media, you start to think that maybe not. That our dead have the dignity of acknowledgement and mourning, that we are no lesser as human beings than others. I thank our allies who are here today and those who have risked jobs or statuses or promotions to speak truth to a vicious, malicious power. I have heard harrowing stories this week of censure in the media, of reporters being bullied and threatened to withdraw their names from petitions they have signed calling on a balanced, ethical coverage of the Palestine issue. I have heard of editors who are so fearful of elevating Palestinian voices that they don't even answer the phone when you call. Speaking out against Israel's war crimes should not be controversial. It shouldn't be subjected to some risk-benefit calculation. It should, not, it should not be weighed against possible career promotion or political victory. It should not be something you consider with your afternoon tea. Huh, should I speak out or maybe not? Speaking up against Israel should be the right, ethical, normal impulse anyone with a beating heart should have. 
when seeing when seeing a genocide unfold before their eyes. It is abnormal and really quite sick to choose to be silent at this time. So for those who have kept their silence, or worse, those who have given a nudge to the war criminals, for the politicians and media puppets who whitewash Israeli crimes for their own benefits, I say shame on you. Uh, okay, sorry. Shame on SBS, especially, for having the least remarkable and the most infuriating and biased coverage of all. Shame on ABC for shaking like a leaf whenever the pro-Israel watchdogs call. Shame. Shame on you, Scott Morrison, but really, we weren't expecting much from you anyway, so. And shame on everyone who took their directives from the Israeli lobby. Human rights are not some strategic tool you use only when it's convenient. Human rights are not some random rhetoric that fills in the blank spaces of your political speeches. Never again should mean never again. To everyone, no exceptions. So shame on those who have allowed this to happen in their name and on their watch. Being progressive except for Palestine is being regressive on your own humanity. Human rights are universal. Palestinians have a right to live in security, but we only hear that about Israel, don't we? Palestinians have a right to live in equality, but who dares say that to a state that defines itself as one for its Jewish people only? Apartheid. Palestinians have a right to citizenship. When did you ever hear the media reporting on the fact that Palestinians have lived as stateless refugees and under Israeli control in Bantustans and in cages since 1948? That's 73 years of bad reporting. And the most controversial right, apparently, that Palestinians have, and that the pundits would tell us, is that Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. We only hear leaders chiming about Israel's right to defend itself. Poor Israel, the world's fourth most powerful army, has a right to defend itself against caged refugees whose homes they've stolen and whose lives they control down to the basics. What food they eat and what dreams they're allowed to have. So let me say this loud and clear. Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. Palestinians have a right to resist the most brutal and ruthless army in the world. They have a right to resist 73 years of settler colonialism and apartheid. And we don't want to wait for another war on the people of Gaza. And it is likely to happen. And we will not wait for another 100,000 Palestinians to be made homeless in one week as we just so happened.
And we don't want to wait for more home evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and in Jerusalem. The ceasefire did not end the occupation and apartheid and the siege of Gaza. And for as long as Israel is not held accountable, the bombs will surely fall again. But here is the good news. The cries for freedom and for justice were so much louder than the sound of their bombs. So let us seize this moment because we don't want to wait for the right moment. The right moment is right now. Boycott Israel, divest from Israeli companies and call for sanctions. This, this is the time to say enough is enough. That is what Palestinians are asking you to do. This is how you can show your solidarity. Boycotts, divestments and sanctions. Say it with me, boycotts divestments and sanctions boycotts divestments and sanctions don't be afraid we know that most people in australia support a free palestine we just need for the media and the political elites to catch on and what can i say settler colonial institutions are a bit slow on catching on today we mark 73 years of ethnic cleansing of palestine and we still see incredible resistance. Israel's attempts at wiping out our people continues to be met with the ferocity and beautiful resistance. And they continue to inspire us and to inspire the world. Palestinians decorating their bombed homes for Eid celebrations yesterday exemplify this indomitable spirit. It is a miracle of hope and survival. We are a miracle of hope and survival. 73 years of resistance. And we have withstood the test of time. They erase, we rebuild. They divide, we unite. They manufacture lies, we wear our truth like a shield. From Yaffa to Gaza, from Palestine to Canada, to the US, to Australia, to every country on this planet, we remember our past and we know our present and we know that the future is ours. Generation after generation, we remain hopeful. We resist and because of this and because of you, I know we will prevail. Thank you. And that was Sama Sabawi at the Narm Nakba rally uh, this past Saturday, the 22nd of May, outside the State Library of Victoria. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and that's all we've got time for today. Uh, but if you wanted to catch the show again, if you missed any of the interviews, you can listen back at www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast. That's all for now. We'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.